Hi everyone, and welcome to Fraser's Capital Podcast. On this episode, I'm having a chat with Peter Stevens, who's rejoined our firm. Uh, he also runs a, an investment letter called Insufficient Capital, and he'd like me to encourage you to subscribe to that. Hi, Peter. How's it going? Hey, Mike. Good job. It's going well. Glad to be back on the Fraser's Capital team. <laughs> Good to have you back. So, yeah, I noticed in in your last update, you um you wrote a bit about uh, the mega tech companies, as you call it. Um, they make up around just under half the NASDAQ, I think around 46%. Um, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Apple. Um, and I was, just, I, was just, I was just wondering what your thoughts are, um, considering they're such a large proportion of one of the largest indices in the world. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're obviously you know, some of the best companies in the world. They're also probably some of the best investments because they're mostly, with perhaps the exception of Apple, growing top line at 20%, like 15 to 20%. And they're also trading very cheaply. So if you use something like EV EBITDA, which allows you to compare, you know, some idea of valuation over time, um, they're trading like 12 times or 12 to 15 times. That's yeah. pretty cheap. So you could easily see a world where you get, you know, 20% top line and then that's your base return. And then you even get some multiple expansion on top of that. So very good investments. But really the best way, and what I kind of tried to write in the latest update, the best way to own those is in an index. Yeah. Because like, firstly... You know, if, let's say Google outperforms Facebook um, this year, that will then be likely a bigger company. And then if they do that for the next five years, they'll compound. So those small differences between those, you know, five will actually result in large differences. If you buy the index, you basically get all of them. You get whichever one wins, you benefit from. Yeah. Um, but as you mentioned, they took up about half of the index. So the other advantage of an index is that um, you have the other half. And the other half has all the challenges, all the software companies, a few leading biotechnology companies. A few that will go to zero. But, um, a few will go to zero. It was the NASDAQ 100. So there will obviously be companies that go to zero. But in yeah. general, you know, there's not that many companies that survive very long. Like there's not many companies, you know, indexes from 100 years ago that are still there. It does mean they went bust though. Like often they're bought out. Um, of course, yeah. Or something, you know, some kind of merger activity. Um, but yeah, you're better off getting, if you own the index, you get those like, you know, something that might be 20 basis points now that might be 10% of the index. Yeah, and um, I think it, it's very different for it's di- very different for the NASDAQ, uh, passive investing in the NASDAQ rather than in the Australian market because in Australia, the banks, the banks make up around a quarter of the index and they're even less, they're, they're far less differentiated than Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft and Apple. So I think as a broader index to own uh, passively, where you just lock it in the bottom drawer, never look at it again. I think the NASDAQ's probably the best global index to own. Yeah, probably on a long-term basis. Yeah. I'd agree with that. And also you get these, these up-and-coming Asian companies um, listing, listing in the US as well. Um, obviously, that might change in time with politics, et cetera. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I see, I think it's a good guideline because that's like the baseline of a good investment. Like, is something going to return more than Google over 10 years? You know, when you know it's probably going to do like 10 to 20% at least. Um, it basically means you need to be more innovative companies, you know, companies with higher rates of return. Mm. Um, it's actually quite possible to find because the flip side is you can get much smaller companies. So our sweet spot's kind of like 1 to 10 billion market cap. Um, you know, try and find those $5 billion companies that could be worth, you know, 20, 30, 40. Um, and that seems like something like a very possible task. Yes. Um, like they're the right size. You can see their numbers. You know, they're growing organically at over 90%. In some cases, over 100%. 
um, it seems like a pretty coherent like place. It seems to be a coherent place for us alongside, you know, um, a portfolio that's heavily invested in indexes like the Nasdaq 100 for capital return and maybe even the, the ASX 200 for local dividend pay. For sure. And uh, you, you're not going to pay, uh, I mean, some people might, but you, you're not going to pay a fund manager to buy companies uh, like Google and Facebook. You're going to pay them to find um, companies like Amarin and other um, interesting interesting yeah, firms in the exciting. portfolio. But I guess uh, I guess from a fund manager perspective, what most fund managers do is that that's what they they want to own like the Googles, the, the Facebooks, the Amazons, because um, there's like less risk, even though they're not doing anything particularly creative or original. Yeah. Um, but they do make good investments. You know, I'd be the last person. I'd certainly advise people. Probably shouldn't be advising people to do anything. But, <laughs> you know, it certainly makes a lot of sense to invest in those companies. I think um, oh, yeah. certainly for the index as well. Um, so you've been tracking Afterpay lately. Yeah. So I think that's a that's a company that we both own. Um, and um, what's interesting about Afterpay is that obviously top 100 Australian company uh, there famously aren't a lot of technology companies listed in Australia which is another reason why I think the NASDAQ could be a better investment is that all of these Australian companies get heavily bitted up if there's any growth um, the vast majority of the biggest Australian companies are uh, rather mature the banks, Telstra, um, or there's very cyclical risk in the big miners. So companies like Afterpay, Zero, the Wax, like the Wax stocks, um, so WiseTech, WiseTech App, and Afterpay, Altium, Zero. These have highly bidded up valuations. We've got two trillion dollars of superannuation in Australia. Um, so you you have a, you have a lot more competition in the US in for technology stocks, but anyway, uh, after pay. Do you read about how they're going to set up an Aussie technology index? Yeah, I think that's in um, I think that's in January or February next yeah. year. That's uh, be a tough one to beat. It's all those companies because there's also the I don't know if they're putting them in. There's also that um, there's also been some red hot Aussie biotech stocks, so Prometicus, yeah. Polynovo, um, what are the others? Clinov- oh, sorry, no, that's uh, Offfield. What's that? Um, nah, different. Anyway, there's a few yeah. of them have gone absolutely ballistic. Some look very good. Some probably less like, like Nanas- Nanasonics. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how that plays out in the local market. It'll be interesting to see what proportion of the wax, what proportion of that index is the wax, or if they're uh, going to include them. One. Surely there would be yeah. half, close to half. It'll be really interesting to see. Yeah. Sometimes Afterpay's traffic stats have gone ballistic. Yeah, so the I mean, stock's actually down. Um, so I guess you might ask for a company like Afterpay, ASX 100. It's 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 relatively hard to get an edge over the over the market. Every all the information is public, but um, obviously everyone reads it differently, and that's how a fund manager. That's one method a fund manager can get an edge. But um, Fraser's Capital and I have spoken. We've spoken to retailers. We've spoke. So we've spoken to the merchants. We've spoken to consumers, and there are also lots of other. Um, interesting metrics that you can track which are kind of alternative um, and which hopefully most of the investment houses in Sydney um, and across Australia aren't looking at. So you can you can track iOS app ratings, um, Google Trends data, uh, Google Trends, lots of people looking at the Google Trends data, but um, app complaints, um, Instagram followers is interesting. So 
you can track the Instagram followers in the US, for example, have grown around four times. Um, so the Afterpay US Instagram account has grown around four times in the last year. Um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff. It's actually yeah. it's actually become quite common now. I remember a couple of years ago, nobody was looking at any of this stuff. Yeah. And now it's like if there's an investment report, you know, they'll put the stats in. It's interesting. It seems like Afterpay is going through a rotation at the moment where a lot of the local small cap fund managers are quite publicly selling it down. And then they're being replaced by, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, KOTU or something. What's that? Oh, the Yeah, yeah. So, so Afterpay did firm. that, uh, I think, $200 million placement to KOTU in uh, November. And I think that was at $28.50. So what's that? A valuation of around $7.5 billion. Mm. Um, so I think I think a few of the Aussie small cap managers uh, have sold on the bat of that, um, replaced yeah, by large cap managers that, yeah. as well. I think they're also just uh, I think it's getting attention from the US, but I think a lot of people are just like actually I'm just going to take the 10x and go home, call it a win, which I think is probably the wrong way to do it. I mean, Afterpay is actually accelerating now, so if you've been able to build a large position yeah. because you got in so early. Um, you're probably better off just yeah. getting paid. Like, you know, that last, if it doubles and then doubles again over the next five years. You've already, you've already taken the initial risk. Yeah, exactly. Like, and now it's actually executing and, you know, it's visibly a larger company every week. But that's that's one thing that's so great about um, Fraser Capital's strategy is that unlike most funds that, lo- that cut positions along the way, um, like we'll only cut it if the story changes. So... A position can grow to up towards fifteen or twenty percent of the fund, um, which people are happy to do in their personal account anyway. Yeah, as I was saying, so, you wouldn't think twice if you yeah. if in PA if you bought a, a stock and it ran, you wouldn't think twice about holding it. Yeah, and in fact, the people have made money in business. Generally, those people often they've founded these businesses. They just held them for twenty or thirty years. Yeah, you see people going from like tiny stores to like incredibly valuable thing. Well, even if you just look at. The, the wealthiest people in the world, most most of them have stuck to their core business, whether yeah. it be Amazon, LV, LVMH. Like, every time times are good, you just sold 10%. <laughs> yeah. Like, you'd end up with nothing at the end of it, Yeah, um, having done all the work and taken all the risk. So coming like that, for our biggest position is Carvana, which we kind of wrote about at length a couple of times this year. Um, and I've also spoken about it. So again, the play there, that's 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 our biggest position and it's uh, just shy of 20%, um, or about 20%. Right. And... Um, that's, I guess it going from 36 to, I think it was 97 last night in about, I guess we bought it in February. So, so that's like $36, $36 per share to 97. Yeah, but that's where we bought our first big lump of shares. Yeah. Um, average price would have been a bit higher, but that's that's then grown to a 20% position. Now, they've got 0.4% market share. They're better for the consumer. They're more economic. Um, they're growing at over 100% a year. In their senior market, in their more advanced market, their, their older markets, um, they're already at 2% or above. Um, so we think it's possible in the next five years to get to 4%. Um, if they do that, that's 10x. Yeah. And as a 20% position, if you 10x a 20% position, that'll triple the fund. Um, and that's just one of our stocks. And again, we, as you're saying, there's like alternative data. We're tracking this regularly. Uh, you, you get the quarterly updates, which is just snapshot. Um, but then you can also see, um, I think particularly in cars, is very good alternative data. Because there's people who track you know, the actual VIN number of every car that's bought, sold, or listed for sale. Um, so you can actually see, you know, what's happening in real time. And I think Carvana's kind of like showing that. I mean, you still have to 
deal with the fact that it's going to move around 20% all the time. Yeah, and obviously at some point that that net profit margin has to flick positive. Um, But I think you also pointed it out in your, you wrote a piece called um, like value is dead or like value is dead, long live value investing. And like companies like Afterpay and Carvana fit into that where they would not appear, um, they would would get screened out of a value investor's, um, of a value investor's portfolio just because you know, it's high, high PE or high EV EBITDA or, or high EV sales at the moment. But in five years' time, if they execute these businesses in net cash and in low, in, in high single digit or low teens PE ratios. Yeah, and typically you kind of hope, you actually hope they don't. Because what they're doing is when there's a great opportunity to invest, they'll invest. Um, so software companies are like that. If they can invest, you know, 200 million in marketing and get 150 million of recurring revenue um, that they hold for 20 years, so getting billions of dollars back on your, you know, 200 million dollar investment, um, you kind of want them to be doing that. And then typically, when they stop doing that, is when the opportunity set kind of small. So growth kind of disappears. Um, I mean, most of our companies. Another good thing about buying companies that are growing very high is it's quite obvious that their their market opportunity is enormous. Mm. Um, so you've got a company, a growth opportunity, but it's really only growing at 10, 15% organically. Um, that's almost evident that they're not, they're not getting huge traction. Either they're not getting lots of traction or the market's fairly saturated. Yeah, for so you sure. You can see that, you know, Zillow was an example of that. So they did their acquisitions and got to, you know, basically full coverage of the US market. Um, and then growth just slowed down. There's nowhere for them to go. And that caused, you know, significant derating and effectively forced, you know, change of strategy. Well, that's, that's one, one way of looking at it anyway. Um, I guess this week we did a lot of work on our garden health and exact sciences, our diagnostics companies. Yeah, I've been, I've been noticing lots of the diagnostics opportunities that um, the fund's been looking at. Right, I'm trying to think if I've ever, I don't think I've actually written up exact sciences. So I just wrote up uh, garden health and sent that out. Um, in some ways, exact sciences is like a clearer opportunity. Um, because, How so? Well, they basically do a colon cancer screening test. Um, so at the moment, there's like a fit test, which is like blood in the stool, very inaccurate, kind of easy to do, super cheap. Um, it's so inaccurate, you need to do it every 10 years. Sorry, once every year. Um, and what, is, is that like one in one in 10 get um, false positive uh, readings? Of, I think I think that, that's that's a bad one because it's 60, 70% accurate. So right. a lot of people with cancer are missed. Um, wow. The hope is that if you're, if you're taking it every year, if you're missed one year, you'll get caught the next year. Um, and obviously the gold standard is colonoscopy, where which is like, Highly invasive, yeah. Yeah, like unpleasant, expensive, done every 10 years. Um, This test is kind of in the middle. They test for a number of DNA markers. um, And and I think there's there's like 10 markers in the stool that I look for. Um, And it can be done every three years. And it's something that can be taken home. Um, And they've got about 6% market share. They're growing at just shy of 100%. Uh, And they think they can get to 45%, which certainly seems reasonable when you consider, you know, the, the traction they're getting with doctors now. Um, and the general advantages of a non-invasive test. So, who are the largest? Who are the larger players or the largest competitors if they've got six percent market share? Uh, well, that includes you. About forty percent of people don't take the test at all. So, even if they're even if the right. doctors like you should do a colonoscopy. So, the total market's like fifty-six percent or sixty percent. The market's the market's large. Like most people aren't tested for these things right. nearly as much. That's why diagnostics is such a good opportunity because the, mm. the amount of diagnostics is done relative to the amount that could be done, and relative to like the net health benefit. Yeah. You know, that's why these companies are all growing so fast. They're growing so fast into markets that don't, 
in a way don't even exist. You know, you're getting people who are never getting tested to get tested one of these ways. Yeah, it certainly seems like very exciting space. And I don't really think that there's any other funds in Australia that are addressing life sciences or specifically diagnostics opportunities. So as like as like a small part of a broader portfolio, the chances of an investor going out and finding their own actinogen or bluebird bio are quite quite low. Potentially, yeah. I think there's definitely a, a case for, uh, <laughs> I mean, I would say this. There's always a case for like getting somebody else to do that for you properly, you know, yeah. full time. Um, I mean, yeah, you have to justify those, those somehow. <laughs> but then uh, Garden, Garden Health is the other one. So these are the people doing, uh, I think there's a bit of confusion in the article. So basically the first step, what they're doing now that's generating all the revenue, it's advanced cancer. They're doing advanced cancer patients, but they're not screening them. They already know they've got cancer. Um, it's more about a case of like treatment selection. So trying to figure out which variants they have, and then that can then like guide the. Uh, you mean which gene, which gene, which mutations to use. Yeah, have caused their cancer or are common to their cancer. Right. Um, and many of those are well-known druggable targets. Um, so that's like the current business. The next step, which they're testing for, actually potentially to compete with Exact Sciences, is you know screening tests for colon cancer. Um, it's not stored; it can just be done in the GP's office um, with a small blood transfusion, but. Exact scientists thinks uh, it won't be as accurate, and they're probably almost certainly correct. Um, what Gardent will say is that you know that hundred percent market share. There's already a significant number of people that are just not doing any tests because they don't want to do some horrible stool test and they don't want to get colonoscopy. Yeah. Um, so that that's like the 10, 20, 30 percent market share that they'll be able to get, and then you'll have you know a kind of a gold standard colonoscopy, a kind of very effective stool test. And then, you know, a blood draw that's not quite as good um, that can be done in the clinic. And that could be roughly how the market segments. Um, but it's all the same. It's all the same uh, technology that's involved right. you know, in all of it. It's Garden's looking for circulating tumor DNA. Um, and so all the kind of, and it's, it's, it's non-trivial. So I think, it's, I think you have to do about, test about three genomes worth of data um, to test one sample. So you remember, it took like a decade for them to do the first genome. And now you're doing three at once for each sample. You know, that's how far the technology's come, and that's how much you have to screen to get those uh, those tiny needles in a haystack. Mm. Um, and what's the what's the exit? Um, just had I've had recently had another look at the portfolio, and um, what's the exit strategy for Bluebird Bio? Because I know that's been in the portfolio for a while. Or? Yeah, Bluebird's an interesting one. I mean, it's been under a lot of pressure lately. So what happened was, this is gene therapy. Um, they're going for monogenic diseases, so genes, disease caused by a single, like, faulty base pair in your DNA. So things like sickle cell disease, which is, you know, the largest opportunity. Um, beta thalassemia, which is another blood disease. Um, and they're also going for blood cancer. Um, right. So leukemia. So that the blood cancer, we originally bought at $75 a share, and they're excellent data in... Um, Multiple myeloma shot the share price up to you know well over two hundred bucks. Right, it's now come down because I guess it, I guess there's two things. There was a lot of concerns over the quality of their data. They didn't know how durable the response would be to multiple myeloma. They've just come out with good data. Um, the share price has shot back up as it does. Um, but really, oh, and the other thing, the other thing that caused a big sell-off was, you know, that these these are very expensive treatments, like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. Um, they came up with a payment plan where they'll those payments will be staged over five years, um, conditional on success, conditional, because most of the trials were shorter than five years. No one really knows how long these gene therapies will last mm. um, because they haven't been around that long to know. Yeah. So the idea is there'll be some level of risk sharing. 
um, and they delayed the launch of their first approved product by a year. So all of a sudden you went from, okay, we're going to have revenues in 2020 of this to, okay, we're going to have revenues in 2021. Oh, sorry, starting in 2020, um, but we're only going to get the first fifth of that, the first 20% of that. Um, so the ramp up is going to be pushed out. The net effect is to push out the entire ramp up by two to three years. Uh, but now it's now it's Bluebird's back in the buying like books now because um, the multiple myeloma data was good. There's mul- there's a number of competing people going for the same thing, but Bluebird will be first to market. Right. Um, so all the new ones will have to prove that they're significantly better um, to justify you know place in the clinic. Um, and again, sickle cell disease uh, and beta thalassemia. There's a lot of I mean, these are the easy, I guess they're the easiest monogenic blood diseases to go for with the most obvious large markets. Uh, so everybody's kind of going them from, you know, chemical drugs to, you know, the CRISPR players. Um, but again, looks like Bluebird's going to be first out of the gates with all of them. Mm. Um, if they're effective cure, then there's a good chance they'll have the market to themselves. And if it segments 60, 30, 10, they'll get that. And Fraser's Capital will probably hold it the whole way through. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, originally we thought, so we had four of these things, you know, a couple of years ago. Isn't four four gene therapy players. Yeah. Three of them got bought out and Bluebird was by far the highest quality um, and it wasn't. But basically Celgene partners with them on their multiple myeloma thing. So I thought Celgene was going to buy them out. And about when this buyout frenzy was happening, I was like ready for the Bluebird buyout. Um, Bristol Myers Squibb bought out Celgene. So that was like a year delay. Right. So now it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, in general, there's, in general, you kind of, there's like a natural life cycle of these things. And you, know, you want to take them from like excellent early inhuman data um, to kind of successful phase three, and then when you come to rolling out the drug, you kind of want them to be bought out by big pharma because big pharma's you know most able to kind of maximize the value there mm. because they've already got the sales force, they've already got the investment. Uh, you certainly don't want to see a you know two billion dollar company try and build a US wide or globally wide sales force. It just doesn't really make sense. Um, so in terms of exit, it's probably at some point there. You yeah. would expect it to be. So do you, th- do you think that they're well capitalized? You mentioned uh, that. They've got his cash. They've got cash out to like 2022. Correct. So they can fund all their, and they're starting to get their first programs, their first patients in their first program are being dosed now. Um, so they will, they raise enough money. They'll be completely fine in mm. that regard. Uh, it was interesting you mentioned it because Bluebird, you know, wrote about it in 2016, I think. Yeah. And it's really, been, I know it's, really it's definitely it. been there for a while. <laughs> so. It has. That has been a long-term investment. Um, what else is worth discussing? Well, I was just, I just noticed that, um, Calendar year to date, um, January to November performance was around plus twenty nine percent, and I guess obviously that that's amazing. Um, I guess I was just wondering what what you think the drivers we're, we're approaching the end of the calendar year, end of the first half of the Australian financial year. Um, what what positions do you think will drive performance over the back half of the financial year? Um. Well, I guess, I mean, I'm not sure what happens in the next, like, one month, three months, yeah. six months. Yeah, I mean, that's not, the, that's not the strategy. Yeah, I would say we kind of segmented in about seven core positions. You know, for example, and the reason there's seven and there's, like, say, 17 stocks is, you know, software will be, software will be our largest position probably at, like, you know, 23 24%. Um, but there'll be four companies in that. Right. Um, so, like, within technology and life sciences, you have further segmentation, Exactly. Um, so you could think of it as something like, you know, 20% life sciences, 10% diagnostics, 10% companies like Clinavel, Ameren, Actinogen, like more biotech Yeah. Um, then you've got, say, like 20 to 25% in software, then like large positions in Carvana, large positions in, in um, Afterpay. Got points bet as well. 
um, which is obviously been quite successful, very quick, surprisingly quick execution from them. Yeah, just a big market share grab yeah. on and their behalf. Pind- Pindwater, I'm very, I'm very interested to see Pindwater's next results. So this is the company that's you know taken 10% market share out of Alibaba. Um, their next results will be interesting because the stock's performed very well. You know, we're buying, you know, kind of 19 to 23 range. And it's about, you know, most recently it's been trading 36 to 38. Um, and that was only a few months ago um, that it made that move up. Uh, but there were some question marks raised in the last results. Right. So again, we're data dependent. We'll completely like rely on the data to guide um, whether or not our thesis is proving correct. Mm. And so I how, guess, yeah, I guess how did you... How do you manage that position with a challenged thesis? Well, I guess... Uh, I mean, I the thesis it, was still the same, but the results were told another story. Well, what could go wrong? The thing that could go wrong is something that happened in our company, uh, our old company, IQE, you know, IQ. So we had very high conviction on that. Um, you know, it was great. This is the Netflix of China. It was half their business was advertising, half their business was subscriber growth for subscribers. They're converting yeah. their roughly 450, 500 million viewers into subscribers at a rapid rate. You know, I think they went from 67 million subscribers to 126 when we sold. So they doubled in like a very short period of time, um, going from, you know, weak advertising, low margin, or like kind of like a low quality customer on advertising to high quality recurring revenue. Um, the problem was is the bottom fell out of the Chinese advertising market. And the reason that happened is because there was like a competition for attention uh, in China that's much more fierce than we have here. So you'll, you'll hear like, you know, the CEO of Netflix say, you know, we don't just compete with, with uh, you know, HBO or, or TV. We compete with gaming. We compete with any other source of, you know, of, with sport, with anything that might uh, actually take your attention. Any atten- entertainment. Yeah, exactly. And that actually happened in China where the competition for attention, they kind of won the subscriber battle, but then they lost the competition for attention um, and specifically advertising dollars that come with that attention. So while there's their kind of subscriber business grew very fast. Um, the advertising business did not, and that kind of negated all that work. Um, so that's an example of a thesis, like not play out. In a weird way, like our original thesis was correct, um, but we didn't count on the other half of the business deteriorating so fast. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, guess it's, I guess at some point that could happen in, in the West as well. You know, gaming's becoming bigger. Um, you know, see companies like Twitch take up large amounts of attention. Yeah. Everyone's talking about esports. I mean, I personally don't have a position, probably because I'm not a gamer. Um, but I certainly think those are huge industries, and you know, they're just getting started. And if you think about, I guess, there's that concept of eventually the money flows, the eyeballs, and the attention. You know, they're getting a huge amount of, you know, global attention, and certainly from young people, um, as well. So they're very valuable markets. So you could see something like that happen. In, but did you? In the did West. you? Um I guess for for oh, investors for investors or listeners, um, knowing how their fund manager reacts to that is is critical. So, did you cut the position a little bit? Uh, yeah, we don't own it anymore. So once that became once it kind of hit that kind of 125 million subscriber mark, it's like wow, well we got we got the um, we got kind of business metrics correct, but the revenues are below where we were. Uh, and you model these things out. So modeled after paid coming up on three years ago now. Um, every time you go into the afterpay model, you have to like write up your numbers. I cheer you when you go into the model, you have to kind of write them down. So it's like very like, you can't miss it. You can't miss the yeah. fact that the company is not performing financially the way you thought it was. And combined with the fact that, you know, the subscribers were, that indicated that, you know, the original premise for buying the stock um, was wrong. Mm. And yeah, which is annoying. Yeah. I find it amazing that the fund 
has has done around twenty nine percent. Yet, um, like just under a third. Um, sorry, uh, the 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 majority of the portfolio is actually still around thirty percent below its below its high. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I guess a lot of these stocks. I, mean, I think there's probably an impression that we kind of just buy growth stocks at the moment, which is not true. Um, I guess I guess they are. Well, they are growth. They, <laughs> yeah. I think no one would classify. We're certainly not doing it indiscriminately. There's, yeah. there's definitely not a. Um, there's definitely not a high dividend yield for any Fraser's Capital investors at the moment. <laughs> no, um, plenty of wealth creation though. In other ways, um, yeah, I guess the reason it's thirty percent down is you know we made we took a lot of those positions when they fell, so there was a huge sell off in the growth complex. Um, I guess some people would have thought that we'll get caught up with but the opposite happened. Pinduoduo, PointsBet, and Carvana all pushed up to dramatic new highs, um, whereas we had you know some small positions in software which dropped 40 percent. So you probably lost maybe four, four to five percent. Four five percent, yeah. Yeah, in that part of the portfolio, it made a lot more than that in the other part of the portfolio. What that really meant is that we we're in a in a fantastic position to really dramatic to double, in some cases, triple our positions. Um, and and this includes companies like Exact Sciences. Like that was a that was a that's a hot growth stock um, that dropped thirty to forty percent. And that's when we loaded up on it. Similarly, Garden was at one hundred twenty bucks. You know, probably in August. Um, whatever it was, you know, we bought much lower. We bought it, you know, sixty to seventy dollars, um, and so that's 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 how that's how the mathematics worked, and that's why when you add up, you know, the percentage weights of our portfolio and the distance from their recent high, you get numbers like thirty percent, which is good because you want to be you want to know that you're kind of like below that. When when everything's like at the top, that's when you can get those kind of like sharp moves down, which will obviously happen. It's just, but it's good to know that there's where the portfolio is now. Um, on average, things are down quite a bit. There's no, there's no exuberance, I would say, in the space. Yeah. Do you, do you find that now that there's, so there's now like four, uh, like a handful of people on the Fraser's Capital team, um, that the idea generation and kind of risk analysis process has changed it all, or it, it's, it's beneficial having um, a conflict of ideas I think it is good. I, th- I think it's good on, you know, when we speak, like obviously we did a lot of phone calls with, you know, I took it upon myself to speak to every company before the end of the year. And so the last two weeks have been very busy. Uh, I think it's pretty helpful having like three or four of us on a call because you just notice different things, you know, some person can take notes, you can have a chat afterwards. Yeah, I think there's, like everything in the investment management, there's like good and bad things of almost every way you strike your business. Yeah. The bad is kind of like group things. So obviously we all like Afterpay. So we're not really challenging ourselves there. Um, in other places, we do have kind of more disagreements. Yeah. And it's got to weigh the good with the bad. Like, we've got to try and be very careful not to avoid any kind of groupthink scenario. Yeah. I mean, um, I think most lo- most studies have found that the ideal um, investment team size is is small, um, but of, of more than more than one. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. probably uh, from like three to, three to eight is ideal. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's so many different ways to do it. I mean, some of the biggest funds have like huge amounts of people, and some of them remain very small. Generally, the ones that perform well are generally very tight teams. Yeah, um, and highly invested themselves. Invested themselves, yeah. And typically, if you go, there's like the model where you have a PM and an analyst, and a, and a group of analysts. This is probably quite typical. And then the analysts do all the work, and the PM makes all the decisions. Um, I firmly think that is a bad idea because basically the person making decisions is not the guy on the call, is not the guy building the model. 
or girl building the model and is not the kind of person, you know, who's in contact with, you know, the company, the situation. Like there's no, to me, getting second-hand information is useless. I don't... Yeah, I guess it's similar to the absent CEO or the absent general in a war. <laughs> so Maybe, yeah. You need to be on the ground. But I tell you what, an example that is like, it's like primary versus secondary sources, right? Like I know a lot of people in the investment management industry love reading analyst reports. You know, I find them like, I try to avoid them actively because partly because you, again, there's good and bad things with them. Well, good, you'll get groupthink as well. Yeah, the good that. is they've done a lot of work and they generally have more contact with the company than anybody else because the company will optimize or spend a lot of time with them knowing that they'll then speak to a lot of investors. So it's quite efficient for companies to spend a lot of time with um, a particular analyst. The downside is you're getting everything secondhand and you over-index on them. So you assume that they know more than you um, and so you think, you don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't need to prove it in the same way. Um, speaking to companies is value. Ex-employees is valuable. You know, competitors is valuable. Asking each of these companies when we have a phone call, like what they think of their competitors, you know, that you get more, mm. you get more information on it. Yeah, we learn more about Exact by speaking to Gardent and more about Gardent by speaking to Exact than from the actual companies themselves, you know. And I find, I find that's really valuable. But yeah. imagine but like the, the PM model where the PM gets like, you know, summary from an analyst and chats to the analyst and then makes a decision, I think is uh, it's a bit too far removed. But that's not to say it can't work, you know. There's many ways to, to do this. Yeah, there's um, lots of ways to skin a cat and <laughs> obviously yeah. it depends also on the on the manage, the portfolio, the PM quality. Yeah, I think, I think in modeling as well it's quite important because there's so many assumptions that go into any model. Um, to have somebody else make all those assumptions as they're building them, I think is risky. Mm. Um, better to build it yourself. It doesn't take that long to whip up a model. Um, yeah. Better to have your that like that that access to the numbers. But still, uh, it's been fun. Yeah. Going going back to um, Afterpay, what what kind of risks do you see in the net transaction margin falling? So higher default rates, more deals um, for bigger merchants. Mm. I'd say the default rate thing, roughly they've always, their late payment fees is always roughly equal to their default rates. I doubt that's an accident. It's kind of how they've been managing it. I imagine that will probably continue. Um, and, and, and obviously the, the credit gets, the credit quality uh, increases over time. Exactly. Provided there aren't too many customers yeah. getting onboarded. The merchant question is TBD, but again, you, it's, it's a data question. You have to follow it. Um, the moment there hasn't hasn't been that price compression, um, and there's so many competitors of Afterpay, but none of them have anywhere near the traction, anywhere near the mind share. Mm. Um, and it's like as as a user of these products, you know, there's there's a huge difference between Zip and Afterpay psychologically. You know, the branding, the structure of the product. If you use Zip, you know, you're encouraged to lend, encouraged to borrow, given a line of credit, um, cost money. It's just they're just they're just different. You know, there's so few. Like Afterpay is such a pure product, pure way of expressing that buy now, pay later, and merchant pays rather than the consumer. Um, and it goes yeah. back to that retail brand value, like people the risks recognize are, and respect yeah. and Remember, it's, it's, it comes down to that aggregation theory. The power is where the demand is. The customers like Afterpay, and the customers are going to Afterpay's sites and apps and then directing their purchases from there. So Afterpay is creating value in that regard and can capture value like there. The risk to Afterpay is not whatever. I, the regulatory stuff, you know, I've been consistently like optimistic about, and that's kind of proven right so far. What as in that the, the free market will sort it out, or no? In the sense that it's a free lending, it's 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 such a friendly lending product. I mean, the last thing they should be doing is cutting off credit to people. You know, these are these are short, these are small amounts of loans. They're very short term. 
Um, there's no risk of compounding into large amounts of debt. If the if the consumer defaults, they're not enforced. They can't ever use Afterpay again as well if they default once. Yeah, but they don't go after. Afterpay doesn't go up. Like it's just it's just a friendly, the friendliest credit product I've ever come across in by such a long way. That is not, and I, I imagine this is what why the regulators consistently argue in favour. Um, so people think about regulation and they worry about competition. Um, I don't worry about those things. I do worry about that. Will they continue to get capture that consumer? That consumer mindshare, mm. um, and will they be super popular with consumers? Because everything follows from that. Yeah, um, and well, that also, is that is what we can track. That is mm. what we're looking at every day, and that is why you know, they've doubled in the US in the last few months. Oh yeah, so, I mean, but also, um, <laughs> I know you just said that you don't really mind much about mind or put put too much value on regulatory risk, but let's also keep in mind that two years ago, the only regulatory risk was Australia, so it was a very key risk. There's also some geographic diversity now where regulatory risk in Australia will affect the Australian business, but now the US business, the Australian business has, the Australian New Zealand business has 3 million customers. The US business um, now has 3 million as well. So regulation in Australia will not affect the business as negatively as it used to. Yeah, absolutely. And then the UK is growing faster than even the US. Yeah, I think the US, the, U, the UK has around 500,000 customers now and they've been there for five months, for, sorry, for, for eight months. So astounding. Black Friday, Cyber Monday, there are 160,000 new mm. customer additions um, across the business. Yeah, I get asked a little bit like where idea generation comes from. I really think like there's, there's so few customers that, there's so few companies that people just love in the same way as they do, you know, some of these companies. Yeah. You, know, you can see the take up. You don't need, you don't need to, I was even to somebody else who was like, why did I miss Afterpay? And kind of said, oh, I didn't realize that millennials wouldn't use credit cards or something like that but that wasn't it you know it's not it's not a case of getting it right it's what what was missed was the fact that hundreds of thousands of people subscribing up you know at a rapid rapid rate like once you saw that that should have guided your decision making it's like that that is that is evidence alone that you should be spending more time to try to figure it out Mm. doesn't mean you will figure it out but the fact that millions of people are signing up to a new service and love it and are like raving about it like that's interesting in its own right you know, that's the, to the extent there was a mistake. If you missed Afterpay, it was probably because there was a hot product that took off and everybody loved, um, and you didn't try and figure out why precisely that was the case. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, when, I say that. I say that. I'm not saying the Afterpay story is by no means over. Um, well, and still if, if, it, if it wasn't, it, would, it wouldn't be in the fund. <laughs> exactly. So there's there's still and and you know my my approach to this stuff is all the most of the things that determine whether I'll be in ten years are happening in the future. I can't really predict them. What we can kind of predict is like, or what we can see is things like, do people love it? You know, how they, how's this, is, did we buy it at the right price? In this case, it's obviously much lower than we were. Yeah. It is now. You know, did, um, does the whole thing make sense? You know, is, are the fun, economic fundamentals in favor? Here they absolutely are. Mm. Um, those are things you kind of control. What's actually, what's actually quite funny is that um, obviously the, the traditional school of value investing founded by Buffett um, and Graham, um, and 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 Dodd, I guess as well. Um, value this this concept of value investing versus growth. A, a key part of Buffett's strategy is buying good brands. So, like, obviously, his most famous is probably Coke. Um, and this is kind of applying that finding a good brand, but applying it to growth investing, mm. like Afterpay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the companies we own, they're all like, they're all the kind of things that people love. 
you know, Alteryx, Shopify, like these have cult followings. Um, they have developer conferences. They outsource their developer. You think, think about the if Twilio has a developer conference and all the developers get together and try and find ways to build apps on Twilio. Think of like what that effective R&D cost might be. And that is all effectively R&D that Twilio gets for free. I mean, we need yeah. to get our zero shares back. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was a very profitable investment that was exited too early. And in many ways, is one of those examples of why we do business the way we do it now. Um, because for all the decision making around whether what the price, what the right price for zero was at any particular time. The thesis had, had not changed. The thesis had not changed. Yeah. And the right answer was to hold it out and see it out. Um, they're still adding customers, still building significant amounts of lifetime value. The fact the share price had run up significantly um, was neither here nor there. You know, the share price can move 30, 40, 50%, and that's going to be dwarfed by a 30% compound growth rate over 10 years. You know, that's really the only thing that matters. And I think, if anything, like, that's kind of what we're going for in our portfolio. Yeah. You know, really <laughs> I guess in, in Zero's case, going back to what uh, what I said at the start, there, there, there also was that factor where there aren't a lot of growth companies to buy in Australia. Yeah, well, they, they, they did go ballistic. What was it 10 years ago or something? Maybe 2011, where they just went from, you know, a few dollars to 30 or 40 and then took a long time to get back up there. But they did get back up there. So anybody who hold, uh, certainly anybody who bought, you know, at 10 bucks or 20 bucks would still be sitting very comfortably. Mm. Mm. Why don't we wrap up things there? Because we have had some feedback that 40 minutes is about the right time. <laughs> yeah. And if anyone wants to check out my newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> Plug your it, newsletter. Like, at, where is it? It's at insufficientcapital.com. Insufficientcapital.com. Yeah. On the way to sufficient capital. I think even at sufficient capital, it's probably more amusing to call it insufficient still. Excellent. Excellent. Thank, thanks for having me on, Mark. Thanks for coming on, Pete. Do it again soon. Yeah, sure. Bye. And that wraps up episode 18 with Peter Stevens. If you want to see more about what we do, uh, you can find us at our website, www.frazzascapitalpartners.com. You can contact me at michael at frazzascapitalpartners.com. Um, and please feel free to you know, follow the podcast, subscribe, um, leave a rating if you enjoyed it. Uh, and please get in touch if you want us to address anything or answer any questions next time.